So this past Wednesday, we gathered right here in the sanctuary and in the chapel at 12, uh, we gathered at 1215, but we also gathered at 7 that night to begin our Lenten journey together. It was, uh, uh, it was Ash Wednesday. It's the day that we uh, remember that all life is fragile, our lives are fragile, the world is fragile, and yet we are held by God each and every day of our lives. It's the day uh, when we have ash-marked crosses scrubbed across our foreheads to remind us of this frailty, but to also remind us of this good news. Ash Wednesday begins the 40-day and 40-night journey through Lent. Uh, The 40 days and 40 nights when we will, as a community, journey towards Jerusalem and the cross. This uh, Lenten season, we as a community are going to look at Jesus' final week on earth. Uh, We're going to dive deep into Holy Week. So every Sunday that we gather here in worship, we're going to take a look at a particular day of the week. And for instance, this Sunday, we're going to look at Monday. We're going to look at uh, what Jesus did on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday, all the way to Resurrection Sunday. And we're going to use the Gospel of Mark as our guide And we should remember that the Gospel of Mark is the first gospel that we have. Uh, It was written 64 years after Jesus' birth. And uh, it was the gospel that Matthew, Luke, and John used as their primary source. So when Matthew, uh, Luke, and John sat down to write their gospel, they had uh, the manuscript of the Gospel of Mark. We should also remember uh, that after Jesus' death, The Roman Empire uh, was executing Christians. And we won't go into all the gory details, but let's just say it wasn't very good. And some would argue that the Gospel of Mark is written to answer this question. As a, a person, as a Christian, how do I live with suffering? As a person of faith, if we've ever suffered, uh, some scholars would say the Gospel of Mark is the Gospel of that we should turn to, because it is written with the question in mind, what does it mean to suffer as a person of faith? I would invite you uh, this Lenten season to to, um, read the Gospel of Mark. It's only 16 chapters long. We have a whole reading plan that you can sign up for every day, and because it's only 16 chapters long, guess what? You won't have to read very much. It's little bits every single day. But this is what you'll notice if you uh, join me in reading the Gospel of Mark this Lenten season. You will notice something really interesting. Almost 40%, almost 40% of the entire Gospel of Mark is Holy Week. Almost 40% of the entire Gospel is Holy Week. Everything in the Gospel of Mark is building towards the cross. Everything in the Gospel of Mark is building towards Jerusalem. Everything in the Gospel of Mark is building towards resurrection. So I'm going to invite you to follow along with me. We're going to read from the 11th chapter of the Gospel of Mark, and we're going to hear what happens on that Monday of Holy Week. Remember, Jesus has just entered the city of Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. We'll get into that more in a minute. He's entered through the eastern gate And this is what he does on the very first day of the week, on Monday. Then they came to Jerusalem. That's uh, Jesus and his disciples, the whole uh, posse, everybody following him. And he entered the temple and he began to drive out those who were selling 
and those who were buying in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. He was teaching and saying, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And when the chief priests and scribes heard it, they kept looking for a way to kill him. For they were afraid of him, because the whole crowd was spellbound by his teaching. And when evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, raise your hand if that text makes you extremely nervous. Okay, I'm the only one, maybe because I'm seen as the chief priest in my robe. This text makes me extremely nervous. And can I tell you why it makes me extremely nervous? Mostly because this is a passage that I hear quoted most often from the Bible. And it's always quoted by people who have a very strong conviction about some injustice in the world. And they say something like, well, you know, Jesus was angry and he would flip some tables. Why don't we flip some tables with him? But here's the thing. Almost every time I've heard someone quote this scripture, they make the assumption that Jesus is going to be just as angry about whatever they're angry about as they are. I've heard uh, this passage quoted by those who will say, yeah, but this political candidate, you know, Jesus had to overturn some tables. Let's just overturn them. And they assume that Jesus, they have the righteous anger of Jesus. I've heard uh, folks who want to save uh, the animals. And so they believe that Jesus has the same righteous anger as they do. I have friends who have causes that I think are very, very, very worthwhile. Uh, Feeding the poor, clothing the naked. We just got to get the table, and we got to flip that table, Matthew. Jesus did it. He got angry. We need to get angry too. And here's the reason this text makes me nervous. Almost every time I've heard this text quoted, people always want to flip a table over a singular issue. It's always about one thing, which makes me wonder. When Jesus flipped over the tables in the temple that day, what did those tables stand for? I mean, If we have this story in the Gospel of Mark, when Jesus flips over the table, what is he really flipping over? We should spend some time thinking about that this morning. The first thing Jesus was flipping over, he had a table. There were all these money changers, right? And I think the tables, I'm not going to flip it, so don't worry. (laughs) It's going to stay right here, and I hope you all can see. There were all these people uh, in the temple. We need to remember that the temple... That was not like the church. Most of us think, oh, we read temple and we think church. It's the place that uh, we come just on Sundays. No, the temple uh, was in the center of Jerusalem. The temple uh, was the the center of people uh, socializing. It was the center of politics. It was the center of religion. It was the center of daily life in Jerusalem. And uh, it's the Passover, It got celebrated uh, once a year. 
And the Passover um, would bring 250,000 people into Jerusalem. It would swell Jerusalem to uh, almost triple her normal size. But we have to remember that the, the temple was built by the empire. So uh, politicians uh, built the temple, and so the temple stood a Bavarian flag, not a U.S. flag. We don't want to go there, but um, Bavarian flag. It stood for the politics of the time, right on the top of the temple. Anybody know what was affixed to the very top of the temple? A golden eagle, much like the eagle uh, that we see on our flagpoles. Same thing, golden eagle on the top to represent that this was part of the Roman Empire. And do you know who placed it there? The emperor and the Roman governor, which was um, an appointed position. So there was a governor of Rome, Pilate, uh, during Jesus' time. And we need to remember, because this was an appointed position, uh, if you were not doing your number one job, you could be replaced like that. Just to be clear, number one job during that time was to keep the peace. So Pilate held his post for 10 years. And do you know who got to pick who was the chief priest? Yeah, you would think it was some committee. We're all Presbyterians that happened uh, in the church. And they, you know, would wave smoke or they would make you answer all these questions and they would ordain you and then you'd be the chief priest. No. The Roman governor got to pick you. Did you know the Jewish uh, scriptures say that if you were appointed to be the chief priest, do you know how long your term was? For life. It was like a Supreme Court justice, right? You got to keep it for life. But here's the thing. During Jesus' life, do you know how many chief priests there were? Six. And it's not because they all died. And Caiaphas was the chief priest uh, during Holy Week. Caiaphas served as chief priest for 18 years. My dear friends, that means that he was really, 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 really good at keeping the peace with Pilate. They made a great team keeping the peace, Caiaphas and Pilate. But do you know, if I were Caiaphas or Pilate, what would make me extremely nervous it would be the festival of the Passover. It would be uh, the festival when 250,000 people would come into the city of Jerusalem, pack into the temple to celebrate their liberation from one oppressive regime and their freedom into the promised land. If I'm Caiaphas or the chief priest, I am quite nervous this week because anything could happen. And come back on Palm Sunday, we're going to talk about what had happened in the years before. The temple, the temple in Jerusalem was a sign of the political power of the time. It was also a sign of the religious center. Let's be uh, really clear. I'm appropriating a cross to stand for religion, and I know how wrong this is. Uh, this was a torture device used by the Roman Empire during the time. But I'm going to use it as a symbol for Christianity because that's how we know it today. 
But the temple stood as a place for all the Jewish people to claim as their home. Uh, The temple is where the Holy of Holies stood. It, It was this one place right there in the middle of the temple that the chief priest could go in only once a year. It was, the whole, it was believed to be the holiest land. It was the place where the divine dwelled. And the chief priest would go to the Holy of Holies once a year on a festival called Yom Kippur. And the chief priest would go into the Holy of Holies after everyone had made amends with one another. Uh, they had claimed and forgiven one another for all the wrongs that they had done over that past year the chief priest would go to the Holy of Holies on Yom Kippur and make amends with God for all the ways that the people had wronged. But it wasn't just that the Holy of Holies was there at the temple. It was also the place where uh, Jewish men would come and pay their taxes. So they would, uh, they would come over and once a year, they would pay um, a two denarii tax. They didn't have Ziploc bags back then. I, They carried it in their pocket. But there was a two denarii tax every year for every Jewish man. And uh, it was for the upkeep of the temple, for the building structure. Two denarii represented two days worth of work every year. And to put this into perspective, the temple on average would take in 100 pounds of gold every year in Jewish taxes. There was an accountant at 815, and I said that, and there was like this delayed laugh. And I said, Bob, you just did the math in your head about how much money that is every year, didn't you? And he said, I did. And I said, how much in today's dollars, Bob? He goes, 100 pounds of gold, about $2.4 million a year. Wow's right. That's a lot of money in our house. $2.4 million a year when Jesus was alive. But the temple uh, was the religious center. It's where the Holy of Holies uh, was. But it was also the place where you would pay your taxes. But it was also the place, it was the only place in first century where you could go and buy an animal for sacrifice. I wanted a lamb, but this is all I could find in Elliot's crib this morning. I think it's a cow. <laughs> So you would go and buy uh, an animal. It was the only place in all of Jerusalem that you could do animal sacrifice. And the reason you did animal sacrifice is because you wanted to be in right relationship with God. In our text this morning, Jesus said, or the text says that Jesus was flipping over tables and he was stopping those from buying doves. Important uh, piece in our text this morning. Do you know what Mary and Joseph, that's Jesus' parents, do you know what they did right after Jesus was born? They went to the temple. Anybody want to guess what they bought two of? Doves. So you would go to the temple and you would want to be in right relationship with God and you would buy an animal sacrifice. The temple stood for all kinds of things. Your religion. Your politics. Uh, Your social relationships, your identity was wrapped up in the temple. So when Jesus flips over the table, is he flipping over a table because it's a singular thing he has an issue with? The temple was huge. 
I mean, the temple was huge. Uh, it was 1.4 million square feet. Woe is right. My dear friends, if we um, took off Nordstrom's and Macy's from North Park, it would be about that size. North Park Mall is 2 million square feet. The temple is 1.4 million square feet. So here's my question for you, Ruth. If you go to the Apple store, if you flip over a table at the Apple store, will someone at Williams-Sonoma hear you? Good point. Thank you, Ruth. If you go to the Apple store, can people at the theater at North Park hear you? Absolutely not. I got to tell you, I grew up in South Carolina. I guess I just imagined all things were small, you know? And so I would read this text and I would imagine Jesus flipped over tables and it was like in, I don't know, some basketball gym or something. I just thought everybody would be able to hear it. But if the temple's 1.4 million square feet, that means that people on the other side of the temple wouldn't have heard this. So it begs the question, does it not? Is this act of flipping over the table really a rhetorical question for all of us today? I think Jesus was flipping over a table saying, uh, the way that you understand your faith is going to be totally different. I think uh, Jesus was flipping over the table saying, uh, the way that you understand uh, your relationship with the divine, you've got it all wrong. I think Jesus was uh, flipping over the table and he was saying, you know all that money that you pay to Rome, all of it that you put in the pot on top of everything else, uh, we're going to flip that on its head. I think Jesus was saying, the way that you pay your temple tax, you, you're seeing it completely wrong. Jesus was being a radical. But we got to get clear on what it means to be a radical in the Latin Radical means root. Jesus is asking, I think, everyone at the temple that day to get to the root of what it is they actually believe. He is asking them to get to the root of what the temple exists for. Which if we go all the way back to King Solomon, we go back to 1 Kings, the temple was built, and I quote, to be the place where the eyes of God and the heart of God will always be with God's people. The temple was built in the very beginning so that the eyes of God and the heart of God will always be with God's people. When we are charging people taxes for the temple, when we are offering up animal sacrifices to be in right relationship in the very place where guys, God's eyes and hearts dwell, when we put eagles on top of the temple is this the root of what the temple was supposed to be? Or has the temple become something different? Better question. Here's the better question. Is how I relate with the temple, is how I relate with the temple, how I also relate with God? the divine? Is how I relate with the temple, how I relate with the divine? Yeah, God, I'll pay my tax just to make sure you and I are good. I'll give you a little bit. There you go. We're all good, right? God, I'll sacrifice something. You just tell me how much. Two doves or should we do a whole lamb this year? 
oh, yeah, 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 I'll vote whatever, is how I relate with the temple actually how I relate with the divine? Because I think Jesus is coming to help us understand (laughs) that we don't need a temple to relate with the divine. For he is the word made flesh. He is the word made flesh. So our faith resides in something beyond anything we could build. So the first question I think we should ask ourselves this Lenten season on this uh, Monday is this. Who am I? Who am I in relation to God? I pass a, a church sign every week. I pass it multiple times. It's not one of those church signs that's like heaven and hell, that whole thing. It's a really good church sign. It says uh, right on the front of it, it says, we are Christians first and everything else second. We are Christians first and then it has all these things that we're not. We're not gay or straight. We're not Republicans or Democrats. We're not married or unmarried. We're not all the things that the world would tell us that we are if we just interact in the right way. We are Christians first. So who are we at the root? Who are we in relationship with God? That's something that I want you to think about this week. That's what Monday of Holy Week invites us to contemplate. And here's the second. If Jesus, if we have this story from Jesus in a temple that is that large, and he flips over the table and it represents all of these things, I think Jesus is saying, we don't get to behave one way here by this set of rules and then walk out of this temple and behave like we want. I think Jesus is saying to those in the first century that the temple doesn't play by one set of the rules and then you get to play by a different set of the rules. I think Jesus is saying is the temple is not confined. Everywhere is a temple. I think Jesus is saying, yeah, you can pay your tax there, but that doesn't give you the right to, pay, to charge people 90% in taxes if they're peasants. I think Jesus is saying, yeah, you can do the right sacrifice and be in right relationship with God, but it doesn't allow you to treat people like their property. I think Jesus is saying that the temple as you have known it, this place that is confined, is going to get flipped on its head because here's the good news of the gospel. My dear friends, everything is a temple. There's no place where you can go where you're not in relationship with the divine. Really, there's no place I can go where I'm not in relationship with the divine? Even at the office? Yeah. Even in the waiting room? The doctor? Yeah. Even around my family's dinner table? Yeah. Even reading my kids' stories before they go to bed at night? Yeah. Even when I'm conducting business? Yeah. Even when I'm drawing up contracts? Yes. There's no place that you can go where you're apart from the divine. Everything's a temple. Everything. So two things I want us to think about as we begin our Lenten journey. I think Jesus is inviting us to consider the root of who we are. Our core identity. The second is this. 
if everything is a temple, how would your life change? I say it this way every week in the benediction, and I'll say it in a minute. Uh, You haven't come to church today. You've come to worship. You leave to be the church in the world. So if we are the church in the world, and the world is our temple, how does that change your life? Oh, my friends, those are powerful, powerful, powerful questions. I believe those questions have the potential to change your life. Because they certainly had the potential to change our world. Will you pray with me? God, thank you for the gift Thank you for the gift of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus the Christ. Whose story we still learn from now. And whose ways we seek to follow. So be with us, O God, that your light would shine through us. So that we could also see your light reflected off of everyone. For we pray in your holy name. Amen.